Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. You know it's time to harvest grapes in the Willamette Valley when the starlings arrive. The sky turns black. It's like, you know, the orcs of mortar. These birds are a big problem for winemakers. An entire crop could be destroyed in less than a day. That's where Alina Blankenship and her team of falcons come in. When I'm looking up at 20,000 starlings, I put up a saker that might be similar to my jet fighter. And then I pull out a Harris's hawk because the birds think that they can go stage in the tree line and I'm able to bring him out and control the tree lines like a bouncer. Later on in the show, we'll meet the falcons standing guard over our farms and vineyards. But first, we're wading into a controversial topic, and that's milk. New York Times food correspondent Kim Severson joins me now to break down the state of the milk industry, including why Gen Z doesn't just drink less milk, they actually find it embarrassing. Like, you imagine you're on a date with someone, first date, and they order a glass of milk. Oh my god. Like, I feel like that's very polarizing. Like, that's like, you know you're either going to, like, get married or you know it's never going to be another yeah. date. Like, that's oh, actually, that's, that's like, a pretty good, like, way to test the waters, though. Honestly. Like, if you're a milk person. Once I went out with this guy milk. to sushi. He ordered milk. <laughs> what? One what glass of white <laughs> milk. God. Kim, welcome back to Milk Street. Hello, Chris Kimball. Uh, I guess I should start this by saying, got milk? Ha, ha, ha. Ha, ha, ha. You know, the very interesting part of the whole milk mustache thing that I learned, reporting my story on milk, is that that was melted ice cream on all those lips. What? Yeah, that's what they did, melted ice cream. That's how it stayed there. That's, uh, that's I know, okay. it kind of ruined it all for me. I'm going to stop drinking milk now. <laughs> so, okay, the setup is that milk consumption has gone down a lot since, let's say, World War II, from Mm -hmm. 45 gallons to 16. Mm -hmm. The milk industry is still a 15 or $16 billion industry compared to two or three for milk alternatives. But the milk industry is panicky because the, the younger generations don't consume much milk. So what's going on? What's happening is milk is just not as appealing to 20 somethings. They didn't grow up with it. This is a generation that was raised by people who often had some almond milk in their refrigerator, the sort of first generation of households to have alternatives. But really, they had a lot of other beverages to pick from. Uh, Somebody, when I was doing the story, said that water was actually the biggest competitor to milk. Hmm. It's also a very environmental and animal rights sensitive group of people. So there is a concern that the environmental impact of the cattle industry Uh, is bad, and climate change is huge on the mind of Gen Z, and also how the cows are treated. Animal welfare matters a lot. The other thing is there's a sense that plant-based milks are better for you and that regular milk is bad. And here is the sleeper, I think, that really changed things about milk. This generation grew up under Obama-era nutritional standards, right? So that made all the milk in the cafeteria no fat or very low fat, And then flavored milks were eliminated for a little while, for a period in there. So these kids didn't grow up with any sense of 
of how great a good cold glass of milk can taste. Well, I think there's also uh, on these TikToks, there's a bunch of kids in elementary high school pouring out milk in their little containers and, and, right. and thinking how gross it is. So the concept of drinking milk is not only un, sometimes unpopular with Gen Z, they have to do it in private. There's, there's a shaming going on here. Right. Milk shame is real, Chris. Uh, I interviewed a lot of college-age kids about this, and um, I found this group of uh, young men who are going to Auburn. There's four of them who share an apartment, never have milk in the apartment. They don't eat it on cereal, don't like milk, except for one guy who has to kind of sneak out to the convenience store and buy his containers of cold milk. And people give him a hard time for it, but he's like, I, I just like it. But one of the things I, I don't get, though, I mean, almond milk, I, I actually researched this. One cup of almond milk takes 25 gallons of water because almonds are famous for consuming water. Mm-hmm. So as usual, there are two sides to this because oat milk and almond milk consume vastly more water than, than cows would consume to produce their milk. So it, it's not a black and white issue when it comes to the environment. Don't confuse this with facts, Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, so <laughs> annoying. I'm so old school. <laughs> Uh, the other thing I think is, is interesting is, uh, and certainly large dairy operations do have an environmental impact that is beyond just water consumption. However, if you believe in protecting the environment, if you would support small dairies in which people can keep their land from development, they can graze their cows, they can produce good milk and have a life. Uh, I think supporting a small dairy or or even something, you know, a dairy co-op, you know, like Organic Valley or, you know, Stonyfield or larger corporations that do buy from smaller farms, I think that's supporting the environment. But interestingly, I will say the milk industry has paid money to um, influencers. They've paid money to Minecrafters, to people who play Minecraft online, and millions of young people watch it to go to a dairy farm and invent little Minecraft dairy cows. And uh, they've, you know, tried to push milk as kind of this, instead of got milk, it's going to need milk. So the idea is that you're working out, you're going to need milk after that. Like milk is the OG sports drink. So I have another question. So milk is a natural product uh, and hamburgers are, you know, beef. But now there's the Impossible Burger. There, there are all these other versions, which are highly processed, right? Uh, almond milk and other things, some of them do have corn syrup or other things. Some don't. But there's a lot of processing there. So why are we going from natural foods to processed to, I guess, solve the problem of raising cows? I mean, there's a, there's a moral issue here, and we end up with more processed food in our diets? Yeah, that's really the, um, I guess, the flaw in the thinking about this. I mean, I think you can make a decision about whether you want to consume animal products or not for right. various reasons. Absolutely. But this phrase plant-based, I think it has this resonance. Uh, if I buy this plant-based thing, I'm somehow helping myself feel better about the fact that the planet is warming. Now, I have long maintained we are never going to eat our way out of climate change. No. But I think people feel like if I take something plant-based, I'm doing something for my health and I'm doing something for the planet. And, you know, it's hard to think about all the things we have to think about, but if I can get this plant-based burger, then it's okay. Now, again, I think this 
popularity of plant-based burgers is falling a little. I think those companies are having a little bit more difficulty because people did start to read the label, right? And if you look at some of the oat milk, if you just did oats and water, it's not that great, right? So it has all these things in it. And again, there are some companies that just do almonds and water, yes, it's, no additives. Fun, yeah. But but some some are not. Yeah. It's really interesting. It it I think milk creeps into many, many areas of our culture and is very reflective of, of where we are right now. Well, I, I think the, the real scam in all of this was low fat. Oh, yeah. It was the whole issue about sugar versus fat. And, you know, as I always say, like, just eat a little bit less. But whole milk versus 2% milk, you know, 2% milk is like colored water. Right. And, and non-fat milk is just, just poured down the drain. I think there were some misguided nutrition policies, yeah. certainly. I don't think that America's children were getting obese because they were drinking too much whole no. milk. But we took that out of the schools, right? So uh, there are dairy farmers who really think that they've been demonized, that milk's been demonized. And it's happening in New York City, you know, where we've got a, a vegan mayor who is trying to get rid of chocolate milk in schools trying to get plant-based milks into schools. And here you have New York dairy farmers upstate who are hurting and are actually pushing legislators to try to make some laws that would force school systems to keep serving milk, which is an interesting approach. The last question, when it when a big industry like the milk industry starts spending tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to get influencers to change the cultural landscape around their product... Does that ever work out well these days, or is that going to be a fruitless endeavor, do you think? It might work. I don't know. The dairy industry has been spending a lot of money, got milk worked. I think they're, it's like a gamble, right? They hit 11 one time, and now they're trying to hit it again. So I don't know if going to need milk is as effective, but we'll find out. I know I will continue to drink milk. Well, I, I've just decided during this conversation to quit my job and become an influencer. You so should, Chris. That's my takeaway. But I want to point out, Chris, you already are an influencer. Don't sell yourself short. Uh, Kim, uh, thank you so much. And I guess we're all going to need milk. Thanks. Right. Well, we're going to need Milk Street. You like? See what Good. I did there? Nice. That was cool. <laughs> Take care. Bye, Chris. That was Kim Severson. Her New York Times article is Got Milk? Not This Generation. Now it's time to answer some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm good, Chris. So before we take a call, so have you had the opportunity to cook with people outside of family who are in their 20s? Wow. Not recently. I do find them rather scary. <laughs> This is how we lose everybody who listens to the show under 40. No, no. Right. I just mean, I'm assuming you mean, and I actually am thinking about family because my nieces and nephews are fabulous cooks. And, you know, I've been learning from them. They just read and do far more than I ever do. So I get a little nervous. I'm like, oh, dear, I'm, I might be caught up short here. They did this wonderful thing with the crispiest chicken thigh skin I'd ever had. And it involved, I don't even remember what involved cooking skin side down, finishing it in the broiler. It was off the charts. Fantastic. This whole idea that, you know, cooking's dead, which oh, was, there's was no popular way. a uh-uh. long time ago. No. It's just complete nonsense. It's complete nonsense. Yeah. I see young people being so excited about it. Really. When you or I use the term young people, that's, it's over. Well, 
well, hey, we got to acknowledge we're no longer spring chickens. I know, chickens but did you here. ever think, here you are a hippie back in the I 70s. I know, that I would be that person saying and, and that you, thing. You would be the person going. No, so. I didn't. But I'm still learning. I'm still having fun. That's what did we say? Matters. What did I say back in 1969? Don't trust anybody over 30. Oh, right. And then I got to be 30 and went like. Oh, dear. Uh, we oh, have dear. to keep adjusting. Don't trust this anybody under 30. Yeah. Anyway. Let's take a call. I do trust people under 30. Let's take a call. <laughs> Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Amy from Morrison, Colorado. How can we help you? Okay, I like to make my own granola bars, and I've tried a number of different recipes, but the problem is I have yet to find one that will keep it in a bar shape, and it always disintegrates into just plain granola, and it might taste good, but that's not what I'm after. You know, the bars are made with six cups of fruits and nuts, and they're really wholesome. So I was hoping that you might have some ideas for how to hold my bars together, but something that's a little bit more in line with a healthy granola bar than melted marshmallows. Yeah, I think you're almost there. Lynn Clark, who works for us at uh, Milk Street, does this all the time. She puts the fruit, the dried fruit, in a food processor with a sugar, and then she adds some vegetable oil, and she makes a paste out of that. That paste is what binds the other ingredients together. You need a binder of some kind. So oil and sugar and dried fruit make a fabulous sticky paste. And then you can add the nuts and other things. She also chops the nuts pretty fine because big pieces of nuts can also make it fall apart. And finally, Uh she suggested pressing the mixture into the baking pan pretty hard. So you really mash it down. You could use parchment paper on top so your hands don't stick. But those three things, she says, actually make a granola bar that is a bar and won't fall apart. Sarah, Hmm. do you have a... Well, I mean, not having ever made granola bars, that sounds very reasonable to me. But I had another thought. I'm not sure this would work or not, which is to add some sort of nut paste, like peanut butter or almond paste or tahini. And that might help as well. Mm -hmm. Tahini would be good. Yeah. Just another thought. With your recipe, what happens with a dried fruit? It just gets all mixed up in a bulb with a spatula or something? Yeah, you mix in a big bowl. It's about a total of six cups of dried fruits and nuts, but they're not that well chopped. And then you melt butter and the marshmallows (laughs) um, over the stove in a big Dutch oven, and then you put the nuts and fruits in with some cinnamon, and you mix it all together. And I do press it hard into the pan, but gosh, when I flip it out and I try to cut them into bars, half of it just kind of disintegrates. Well, try that. You have all the ingredients. It's just how you assemble them. Just make a paste first and then add the rest of the ingredients. Right. May I just ask um, for your suggestion on the proportions, oil, sugar, dried fruit. Any thoughts? I don't think you'd have to add a lot of sugar because dried fruit is very sweet. So if you had three cups of dried fruit, I might use, I'd say, a third of a cup of sugar and a quarter cup oil. That would be a good base. Also, the mixture in the bowl, if it doesn't feel right, you can always adjust. The good thing about granola bars, it's not like making a souffle or a Swiss meringue. And nobody's going to fire you. They'd just be glad. And it's still going to taste good. (laughs) Anyway, give that a shot. Okay, Amy. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Give us a ring anytime, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Jim from Bend, Oregon. How can we help you today? Well, a couple weeks ago, 
I made some homemade ice cream, strawberry, and I used the Cuisinart recipe. I have a, an ice cream maker at home. I went to the farmer's market, got a pint of strawberries. They were just ripe, how they should be, very flavorful. Chopped them up, put them in the mixture as I was turning on the machine. And the base was great, but the strawberries themselves were like tiny little icebergs. Like right. when you bit through them, it was just like a popsicle. So I'm wondering, is there some secret to putting fruit and ice cream? And I know strawberries have a lot of water. That's why they're icy. But how do you do it so they don't taste like icicles? Excellent question. They're like almost 100% water. They're like 90-something percent water. So you basically had little ice cubes, strawberry ice cubes in your ice cream. One way to deal with it, Stella Parks does this in her book, is to cook the strawberries down with sugar and get a really pretty thick puree and you swirl that into the ice cream just before you you freeze the ice cream and get it up to a certain texture and then add it in and finish it and then put it in the freezer and that'll work out pretty well the other thing that works well in ice cream is alcohol so you might actually Uh. cook the fruit down with some alcohol as well and that alcohol will also soften it and make it not hard but basically cooking the strawberries to get rid of much as water as possible The sugar will help you with the freezing as will alcohol. That's the short answer. Sarah? Yeah, no, I I agree 100%. You could just, if you don't want to use the alcohols, you could also just cook them in a little bit of water with some sugar, and the sugar lowers their freezing temperature, and then cooking them to get rid of some of the water and then get that sugar into them, which will mean they don't freeze rock hard because of the sugar. I'll just add, there's a restaurant in Venice, California, and the chef did a book a few years ago, Jelena. He used creme fraiche in with the milk or cream with the recipe. And for some strange reason, which I can't explain, you come up with this incredibly buttery, creamy texture to the ice cream. It does something about the freezing. I don't know why. Maybe it's the fat content. So when next time you do ice cream, just take a cup of creme fraiche and substitute it for a cup of whatever you're using, other dairy, and just give that a shot because you also get a, a much better texture overall. So That's a great idea. Yeah, You know, I want to share a secret too, by the way. I take freeze-dried fruit and I uh, put it in the food processor to turn it into a powder. Mm. And then I add that to the base. Oh. And that really gives it a great flavor too. That's brilliant. We should have been calling you. Yeah, really. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to share with us now we got you on the line here? Maybe we should have three people on the show. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, just cook it down and check out Stella Parks. She has a recipe for that. Yeah. Sounds great. Jim, thanks. Yeah, bye. 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 Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is uh, Jacob from Cleveland, Ohio. How can we help you? I recently got uh, from someone's garden some uh, garlic they grew. They said it's in chilium red. I was curious if you guys knew anything about that, had any ideas how to use it, maybe some recipes that would really, you know, highlight this really great looking garlic. Have you tasted it yet? I haven't yet. No, I haven't broken into the bulbs. But they said, oh, let's see, they left a note. It's a mild, pungent taste with a medium level of spiciness, if that helps. And no, actually, I'm not familiar with it. I can give you a couple suggestions and turn it over to Sarah. First of all, you have a lot of this garlic or just some? I got four heads. Well, three things I would do. I would cut off the top quarter, throw it in a super stew, cook it you know, as long as it takes, and then take it out and squeeze the bulb and... That's a wonderful, soft, mild garlic you can stir back in. Two, I would crush some cloves, peel them, 
and just shove them in a sauce or olive oil at the beginning of a recipe and then take them out later so you get a nice garlic flavor, but it's not overpowering, depending on how pungent these are. And my last suggestion is to slice garlic, peeled cloves, slice it, and use that with the olive oil or whatever you're cooking with. And that doesn't break down the cells as much, and you get garlic flavor without any garlic aftertaste. Okay. So you've got some really fresh stuff. It might even be the kind of garlic you could use in a Caesar salad dressing, raw, just a little bit. That would give you the clearest idea, idea. just for fun, of what its real flavor is in the garlic world. So I would do that. I agree with Chris about the, um, since you've got four whole heads, I would cut off the top of a head, drizzle it with olive oil, salt and pepper, wrap it in foil, put it in the oven and roast it like 375 until it was really, really soft. And then I would squeeze it out and just add it to all sorts of things. But after you roast it like that, you can also freeze it so that you have it down the road. And another thing, when Chris was talking about slicing, the best way to slice garlic is if you should happen to own a truffle slicer. It's the best tool. It's like a mini mandolin. I often use it for garlic, and then I saute it slowly in a fair amount of olive oil until it gets crispy, you know, barely golden, and then scoop it out with a slotted spoon and put it on paper towels and season it with a little salt, and there you have some yummy garlic chips. That'll also give you a really good idea of what it its real flavor profile That's a good is. Idea. So that would be my suggestions. You're a lucky man to have fresh, fresh garlic. One other thing you do is... A typical French vinaigrette, sometimes you'll cut up shallots and put them in the vinegar and let them sit for 15 minutes before you add the oil, etc. Do the same thing with slices of garlic and let that sit in vinegar for a bit and use that as a basis for salad dressing, too. Yeah, that would be nice, too. That would be really nice. Yeah, that's a lot of great ideas. Thank you so much. Well, let let, let us know what this is like, if it's different. I mean, fresh is better, of course, but whether it's spicier or whatever. Yeah. Jacob, thank you so much. Take care. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Coming up, why you should thank a falcon for your bottle of Pinot Noir. That's coming up right after the break. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, Man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie. Capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The 
ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. There are falcons circling overhead at Goshi Farm in Oregon. These birds are hunters. They're smart, lethal, and can spot prey from a mile away. But right now, they're not here to kill and eat. Their owner, Alina Blankenship, wouldn't even allow it. Because today, they have an important job to do. They're here to protect grapes. Agave, what are you thinking, babe? That's agave. Agave of all of my birds is the most fun. She's just a joy. Everything she does is wee, wee, I can jump to this perch, wee, I can go there. Everything is over-exaggerated and exuberant like a little child. So um, my name is Alina Blankenship. I am a master falconer, and I work as an abatement falconer. And so we're able to use these birds to protect things. We are at the Goshi Farm in Silverton, Oregon, amongst the beautiful Pinot grapes. 
Gail can describe them better. I look off at the sky, Gail, Gail looks down at the ground. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm Gail Goshi, and um, I'm a fourth-generation farmer for our family here in Oregon. I have the, the pleasure of being able to manage the hops and the wine grapes. And when it comes time to be close to harvest of wine grapes, birds are a natural phenomenon that you can't avoid. They're, they're damaging those berries in that cluster of grapes. And then that is leading to be able to open it up for mold and diseases. And it's not acceptable to be able to send a, a diseased, partially eaten cluster to the winery. I mean, there, there could be losses of 5%. There could be losses of 20%. There could be losses that, that you wouldn't be able to harvest your vineyard. So that's when we need to call in the defenses. Of all of the ways that a farmer thinks that they might be able to control these swarms of birds, falconry is the one that is continuously, year after year, the one that's successful. Thorn! The uh, pine trees over there tend to have birds staging in them, so we're going to head over there and clear some of those out. So I'm trying to get his attention so we can bring him back over to us. So I'm going to grab a tidbit. I'm going to raise my glove. Huck! There is 100% food. If I clock, I don't lie to him, there's 100% food. It's your buddy, Gail. Mr. Thornman. It's not just a stunt. It's a, it's a skill on the bird's part, and it's certainly a skill in, on Alina's part as well, a huge skill. Our growers want us to work as hard as they do. It, this is a demanding job, it's stressful, it's hard, it's rewarding, but there's a lot that goes into it. They're the most uh, focused professionals I've met. <laughs> they start to have this focus of like bird eyes in their own eyes. And it's, it's, a, it's very intense. It is a dangerous endeavor for falconer and falcon, and it is not for the faint of heart. Elena accepts these challenges head on, the long days, the dangerous conditions. But 12 years ago, she didn't have any experience with birds. She just had a reputation for being fearless, which is why one day a friend called her up and says there's a bird banging itself in her garage. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I just simply have more nerve than she does. So I go and I throw my coat over it and said, well, I'm going to take in the bathroom and see if it's okay. And I'm in there a long time, and when she comes in, I'm crouched down to what I now know to be a juvenile Kruvers hawk sitting on my arm. While identifying the hawk, Alina discovered falconry. For millennia, it's been a way to hunt for food. It was the sport of royalty in the Middle Ages, and now farmers like Gail are swearing by it. Alina joins us now to share more about her falcons. They also guard blueberry fields, cherry orchards, and migrating salmon throughout the Pacific Northwest. Alina, welcome to Milk Street. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to do this. So your business, Sky Guardian, helps to reduce the amount of crops lost to bird damage. So 
the real question is, are a handful of falcons going to make a difference? Well, the crop loss would be catastrophic. Topography plays a, a huge component. What is around you? Time of year? Are you on the migration path? All of that factors into the crop loss by bird. And one of our growers would not have a harvest because she has dairies on both sides of her. So her starling population number in the tens to hundreds of thousands. It's like, you know, the orcs of mortar. Like, no, you guys can't come in here because it, the sky turns black. Hmm. She gets so many starlings. And they're, they're, I think they become um, addicted to the sugars of the grapes. So they're relentless and they come in like schools of fish. And what we are, are we are wing security guards. We use the birds of prey and take advantage of the natural predator-prey relationship. The grower has few other strategies. Birds are protected in America, so they cannot shoot them. And it's impractical to use a lot of the other strategies. For instance, they use air cannons. Well, not only does nothing bad happen when an air cannon is deployed, something good happens. We, we tell our growers at the beginning of the season, you're not using any more dinner bells. Because what happens is you only start using the air cannon when the fruit's ripe, so it starts bringing in the birds from neighboring areas to say, hey, my fruit's ripe, come on over here. Why it matters is when you're in a blueberry crop, for instance, the degree of bird damage determines whether that grower will be in the fresh market, the frozen, or the process market. When they're in the frozen or the process market, they really have probably lost money that year. Same thing with cherries. If there's too much bird damage, they won't pick that acre because it doesn't become um, cost beneficial. But here's what I don't get. You said the birds are smart. Uh, they realize that the air cannon's a dinner bell. So your birds, your falcons, are not actually attacking or killing Correct. birds. Oh, very good question I see coming. <laughs> and, and, and so the birds are not stupid, so they don't they figure out that this is all decorative at some point? There are ways that we protect against that. Number one, they are hardwired to be afraid of falcons. They can't change their natural hardwire. If I dropped you off in Africa and I said, hey, Chris, don't you worry about that lion? You're as afraid of that lion on day 242 as you were on day one because it actually still has the desire and the methods to kill you. Our birds have lethal intent and lethal capability. But when we're doing abatement, we really don't want those lethal interactions. So I need my birds to spend less calorically than the birds I'm chasing. Yeah, I was going to ask that because I, I think there'd be a balance of fear on one hand and, and hunger on the other. So if there's a bunch of ripe blueberries or grapes, you might take the risk to eat them even if there's a, a falcon or a hawk flying around. Right. One of, my, um, one of the things I love to see in blueberries is a bird come in, steal a blueberry, and flee out of there. His fear shows me that I'm doing a good job. So you have to spend a lot of time and a lot of weeks. I mean, like blueberries, they don't all ripen on the same week, I know. Correct. So you got to spend weeks and weeks and weeks at a particular farm, right? This might appall you, but um, for something like blueberries, we're there from Verasion to pick. So that in a blueberry crop, that might be two months, might be four months. Seven days a week, dawn till dusk. And I generally start my morning walking around with a bird on the glove. And I walk the entire crop going, this is my territory. I want the prey species to look at me and say falcon. I want them to see my dog and say falcon. I want them to see my car and say falcon. And they do. So I try and use whatever force multipliers I can from the get-go in the morning. 
I just wonder if birds are smart enough to evolve to the point they start feeding at night because you're not there at night, right? <laughs> so um, on one of our crop, there was a, a filbert orchard adjacent at the south side of the crop, and it hosted uh, finches. And what the finches' goal was to, was to eat through the night. So what I would do from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock at night I had about a 200-foot stretch that I would do two miles in, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, because they kept trying to send scouts. They kept looking for me not to be there so they could spend the night in the crop. I was so happy when that filbert orchard got taken out because I didn't have to be there until 10 o'clock any night. But I, but I was unwilling to lose the crop for that. So you get up early, <laughs> I would guess. You load up your SUV <laughs> with birds. And is that just 12 straight hours of... This bird goes up, that bird goes up. Is there a, a rhyme or reason to how the day's structured? I need the right golf club for the swing. So um, when I'm looking up at 20,000 starlings, I put up a saker that might be similar to my jet fighter. But then I look at the next problem, and I put those away, and I'll pull out something that's called an oplomata falcon. And she's able to go through the rows very quickly, just like those small birds that I'm chasing. And then I put her away, and I'll pull out a Harris's hawk because the birds think that they can go stage in the tree line. And I'm able to bring him out and control the tree lines like a bouncer. How do you, okay, you got to explain, train, however you do it, each <laughs> bird to perform a particular task well. Fly in between the rows, herd 5,000 starlings. What's that training process like? The, the process is called manning. We never call it taming because they're never tame. These guys are solitary creatures. We don't touch them extensively because in the wild, if something's touching them, it's generally eating them. Now, if you have a solitary creature that doesn't need you and is rather offended by your mere presence, the only thing you can do is have transactions with it. When you're an apprentice falconer, for instance, you trap your first bird. So you have a wild bird that was making a living out there in the wild for two, three, four, five months because we take a young one. And you have to teach it, I know you hate me, but here I'm going to give you a good deal. So we start feeding them and they go, oh, they're like teenagers and cats. They hate you so much. But like a teenager cat, you can give me food now and then get away from me. Let's, let's talk about that. You know, I, I used to have horses for years and the, the the relationship you'd have with a horse is deep. It is. Yeah, it's very emotional and it's very deep and it's uh, it's a really interesting relationship. I have horses. I'm, I'm familiar. But it, it's, it's sort of sad to me that, you know, your whole business is based on these birds and a long-term relationship and it's, as you said, it's transactional. And I'm simplifying a little bit. Right. Like human personalities, there's some scratchy individuals and then there's just marshmallows. Birds are the same way. There are some birds that we have more of a, a relationship with than others, and that goes to individual, but it also goes to species. A Harris hawk is unique. Remember I told you these guys are solitary creatures? Harris hawks are from the desert. Desert's a pretty hard place to make a living. So what a Harris hawk is going to do, it's going to stand on top of the biggest saguaro cactus it can find, and then another Harris is going to stand on its back and its back and its back, and they're going to face the directions of the compass. That's amazing. And they're going to go boom, 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 and hunt like flying wolves. That's incredible. And we could talk for hours and hours about their unique physiology when I, I teach a lot. 
and I teach about to the children about the superpowers of my birds. And we talk about pneumatic bones where these falcons can breathe through their bones and the speeds, you know, faster than the flash. Wait, 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 wait. What, what does that mean, breathe through their bones? <laughs> um, I'm a thousand feet up in the air and I'm looking at that duck on that water and I don't want that duck. So as this bird is coming down and keeping its eye on this duck, it's corkscrewing like a bullet in a chamber. It's exceeding terminal velocity. At those speeds, you would pass out. The bird's nasal cavity is designed with a spiral to control the passage of air and a cone to prevent vacuuming. Our jet engines are designed after that peregrine's nasal passage. So when you got started with this, what were some (laughs) of the things that I mean, I've been very surprised <laughs> in this conversation. Are there one or two things that really surprised you, shocked you about things they can do or cannot do? Well, uh, the first thing I'll say what surprises um, me about being a falconer and any new falconer, I'm like, well, you think you're a capable human being. You become a falconer and you're a blithering idiot. <laughs> but the cool thing about my job and some of the things I've learned is that miracle of what they're capable of and how exceptional they are, it never gets old. If I'm walking down the field and I put my hand up and a bird hits it from behind, I could do this all day long. I could do this all lifelong. And then as you see more and more of their capabilities and you work more and more as a team, I've got a wild animal that considers me an okay, occasional, decent human being team member. How cool is that that I get to work with these guys and they're willing to work back with me? Elena, it's been... um It's been wonderful. This is just absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Elena Blankenship. She runs Sky Guardian Falconry. Earlier, we also heard from Gail Goshi at Goshi Farm in Silverton, Oregon. Our field producer there was Joel Shupak. Using falcons to reduce vineyard loss is just one example of a very clever solution. Here are a few more of my favorites. Some elevators now come equipped with buttons you can push with your feet if your hands are full. A Dutch supermarket offers six brands of toilet paper in its restrooms, so you can test them for yourself in a very real-world setting. One dentist installed a Where's Waldo puzzle in the ceiling to keep patients occupied. No cash, no problem. The dip jar is a credit card tip jar. So, falcons to control grape loss? Well, why not? Necessity is always the mother of invention. This is Milstead Radio. After the break, Alex I News shares the secrets to the perfect creme brulee at home. That's coming up. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now let's head into the kitchen with J.M. Hirsch to talk about this week's recipe, zucchini carbonara. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, I was alive during the 1970s, <laughs> and an adult, I'd add. And the Moosewood cookbook was sort of one of those first, mm. you know, vegetarian cookbooks that did very well. And now we're about to talk about zucchini carbonara, and I just have to say, <laughs> it reminds me of like the you know the broccoli forest recipe from that book. Mm-hmm. Or, is that really? I mean, talk me into this. Why am I making carbonara with zucchini? You know. When I first heard about this dish when I was in Rome, all I could think of was your reaction to it, frankly. (laughs) And I knew you would doubt it and you would doubt me. But you really actually can make a delicious carbonara with zucchini. So as you know, traditional carbonara is pasta and egg, black pepper, pecorino romano cheese, guanciale, or pancetta. And it's delicious. It's meaty. It's rich. It's a little heavy. It's delicious, let's face it. This, however, zucchini carbonara substitutes, well, zucchini for the guanciale. So it's making a vegetarian version of it. And what's really interesting, it sounds like a made-up vegetarian recipe, right? Something that you're trying to pull the wool over somebody or trick them into thinking that, you know, cauliflower really is a pizza crust sort of thing. But actually, this has legit roots in cucina polvere that, you know, the make-do-with-what-you-have cooking of Italy. And, you know, when you don't have guanciale, what do you use? Well, you use whatever you have in abundance, and they happen to have zucchini in abundance. Is that like like that famous book, Like Zucchini for Guanciale? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Now, wait, hold on, wait, wait, wait. Zucchini substituted for guanciale, how does that work? I mean, just the concept. So it's all in how you cook it. 
it's going to come down to the fact that in order to replicate the kind of meaty robustness that you're losing when you take out the guanciale, is you have to really brown your zucchini. Oh, so I now, get it. Okay. yeah, so you're doing two things. You're giving it that kind of depth and that richness from being brown, but you're also crisping it. So you're getting some of the texture that, again, you would get with crisped guanciale. Now, are you going to take a bite of this and say to yourself, my goodness, this is just like regular carbonara. No, of course not. But you are going to find that it's delicious and it is robustly meaty in the way that zucchini can be. You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you you're going to think it's guanciale, but it is really delicious. And if you give that zucchini time to brown, it's going to deliver a ton of flavor just like guanciale would, albeit a little bit differently, but it's still going to be a robust and savory flavor. The key, though, is to get that really good browning. And so when we make it, we do the zucchini in batches, for example, in the skillet, so that it doesn't steam and it actually has a fighting chance to crisp really nicely and brown. Well, I mean, this is not the impossible burger of burgers. This is a dish in its own, right? I mean, if you have a pound and a half zucchini, I think it's just a great dish on its own, regardless of your guanciale substitution, right? Absolutely, yeah. This is, again, this is something you make because you want zucchini and pasta. And it happens to have a richness that a lot of people compare to traditional carbonara. It really is quite good just on its own. One last question. Carbonara can get kind of gluey after two or three minutes after serving, besides eating it as fast as you can. (laughs) Do we have any (laughs) culinary solution to that problem? Well, as always, one of the most important ingredients of any pasta dish is the pasta cooking water, of course. Stirring that in toward the end, that's going to keep it nice and loose. And zucchini is adding some moisture as well, which again, keeps it a little bit loose. It's just delicious. So you're just going to have to eat it really fast if it starts to get gluey on you, but it won't. Like zucchini carbonara for carbonara, (laughs) but a recipe that is great in its own right. JM, thank you. Thank you. You can get the recipe for zucchini carbonara at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Now it's time to check in with our Paris correspondent, Alex Inews. Alex, uh, how are you in the city of light? I'm great, Chris. How are you? I'm good. I want to touch on a subject that is pretty important for us. Crème brûlée. Is that a favorite dessert of yours? Yeah, I've had lots of cases where I've torched it and the sugar <laughs> caught on fire. And... <laughs> this, is, this is something that has happened to me, either like uh, setting the, the whole top on fire or not being able to turn it into a glassy almost right. caramel and not being able to create that crack that I need when you hit that top with the spoon, which I feel, I don't know about you, but, but I feel that's an integral part of the creme brulee experience, right? Well, otherwise it would be creme caramel or something, right? I mean, it's you're right. You're right. And it's very hard. It's a good point. I don't think I've ever done it as well as I would get in a really good restaurant. I, I, I had it in a very good restaurant. Uh, actually, they, they, they say that it's possibly the very best restaurant for creme brulee here in Paris. And the crisp on top was very light. It was delicate, but it was still present. And so all this has uh, led me to think that the caramel top is like the most tricky part in making creme brulee. I agree. Turns out it it is not. (laughs) I've been practicing my creme brulee in my studio after paying a visit to that restaurant. And getting the top right is pretty easy. The problem 
is lying underneath. <laughs> the problem lies in the custard itself. And I think this is also something that I realized at the restaurant eating the creme brulee itself. I was just, you know, enjoying the crispiness of the caramel. And then I, I realized I've got a very intense wave of vanilla hitting my face, <laughs> basically. <laughs> the fact also that the texture of the custard underneath the caramel is, you know, set, but barely. Right. It's, it's just asking to fall apart. Right. It's very creamy and loose, yeah. Exactly. So the flavor combined with the texture of that custard makes it, in fact, the most complicated part of making crème brûlée. First of all, uh, to, to make a good custard, I'm not usually very good with grams in general, but, but I can be okay with ratios. And I feel like the ratio that works the best for me is one part milk, five part cream, so it's pretty creamy, one part egg yolk, and one part sugar. Hmm. Now, you still have to infuse this with vanilla, because vanilla was also one of the things that really blew my mind at the restaurant. Uh, I went in the kitchen with the chef, I had the chance to do this, and he has shown me the beautiful pods he used. That is absolutely crazy. I I'm sure you must be familiar with, you know, premium, fresh, plump vanilla pods, but they are just on another level than the things we can get in grocery stores. Yeah, the stuff in the grocery store has been dried in the bottle for about 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> I, I once bought a box of the good stuff, and they, you know, they're just, oh, they're moist and exactly. sticky and wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. Just touching them, you've got your fingers full of essential oils, basically. Well, the thing that I bought in the grocery store, yeah, it was dead. It was dry. It was just like looking sad, to be honest. So <laughs> whatever I was doing... I wasn't extracting enough flavor. So at some point I thought, well, what can I do with what I have? Maybe there's a better way to extract vanilla flavor than just dropping the pod along with the seeds in the milk with the cream and, and the other ingredient. Maybe there's something better. So I started doing my research online, trying to see how industrials extract the vanilla flavor from vanilla pods. And it turns out they use alcohol. Right. So I just pulled out a, a bottle of vodka from the cupboard and I chopped my vanilla pot into little chunks. I made sure to, to scrape the seeds out and I let all of that infuse in just, just a touch of vodka over, overnight. The result was amazing. First of all, it extracts uh, vanillin in a way more efficient way than just fat or just huh. water because alcohol is really working his magic on it. And second, if you make a little more, you've got vanilla vodka on the side. So how many vanilla pods and how much vodka? Is there a basic recipe here? Let's say if I use a cup of milk, I would use two pods of vanilla. So I used that liquid, that vodka infused with vanilla, and I dropped it into the liquid custard, and I mixed it up. I did have, in all honesty, to do a few adjustments because, like, the alcohol has an impact on the fact that the custard sets. So you need an extra egg yolk or something? Yeah, exactly. You, you need to add a bit more eggs, exactly, or to increase the cooking time a bit. But overall, this works amazingly. It does mm. add a little vodka flavor, which I'm not against. I, I just feel like maybe if you want to use rum it might be a little better suited in terms of flavor profile than just vodka. But the reason why I went for vodka is just, it's the cleanest alcohol that was available to me. So we, can we get back to the top for a second, which you 
dismissed as being easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> so are you using white granulated sugar, demerara? What kind of sugar do you no, use? No, so, so, so you're right. I'm using demerara sugar. Uh-huh. It just caramelizes better and the color is nicer. You really want to go for it. So at first, I was barely heating that thing up and allow it to melt. No, you want right. to be on the brim of, of this being burnt just, be, just before. And do you use a plumber's torch or do you use one of those expensive little gourmet torches? No, so, so I use a plumber's torch. Yeah, of course. And, and I try not to turn it into oblivion. You want the top to be warm, but you want the bottom layer, the custard, to be cold. That's what I like in creme brulee. Right. And I think, like, over time, after having done this recipe, I realized the key is not the top, but the key might not be the bottom either. I thought it was, but the key might just be the balance of that mm. ditch. Getting the right balance between hot and cold and getting the right balance between sweet and not so sweet. Ah, you're a subtle guy, Alex. <laughs> 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 always, always investigating the subtleties. Well, there you have it, the yin and yang of, of creme brulee. Brilliant. It's all about how they work together. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much. That was Alex Inews, host of Just a French Guy Cooking on YouTube. That's it for today. You can find all of our episodes at MilkStreetRadio.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can learn more about Milk Street at 177MilkStreet.com. There you can become a member and get full access to every recipe, access to all live stream cooking classes, free standard shipping from the Milk Street store, and more. You can also learn about our latest cookbook, Milk Street Noodles. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. We'll be back next week with more food stories and kitchen questions. And thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimmel's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Co-founder, Melissa Baldino. Executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Senior editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp. Associate producer, Caroline Davis, with production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brindle Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.